Heavenly Father, as we now prepare to hear and receive your holy, inerrant, infallible word, give to us a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Christ, so that the eyes of our hearts might be enlightened. Help us to know and be established in the hope to which you have called us, the riches of the glorious inheritance in the saints, in the immeasurable greatness of your power at work in us. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Hear the word of the Lord. Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to become, to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and in this way all Israel will be saved." As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience... So they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For him who has known the mind, for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? 
or who has given a gift to him that might that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever amen the grass withers and the flower fades but the word of the lord endures forever thanks be to god amen So we come this morning to the end of this section of Romans, chapters 9 through 11, where the Apostle Paul has been dealing with this question of what happens to God's covenant people, the nation of Israel. These are the people whom God has chosen out of all the nations to be his people. It is to them that God has revealed himself and had given his promises and through him that he had promise to bless all people. And so Paul has been dealing with this dilemma of their rejection of God's righteousness in Jesus Christ. We noted last week that Paul establishes that Israel in its totality would not be rejected. For Paul himself is proof that God has preserved a remnant chosen by grace for himself. Not one whom God had chosen for himself would be lost. Further, as we saw last week, Israel's rejection of Jesus Christ as the Messiah was not somehow outside of God's saving purposes. Rather, it was God's will that their rejection would be the means by which the door of salvation was opened for the Gentiles, fulfilling God's promise to gather unto himself one chosen people, purchased by the blood of Christ from every tribe and tongue and language and nation. Not only this, but the Gentiles' inclusion into God's family and their receiving of God's salvific blessings would serve to provoke the elect among the nation of Israel to jealousy and prompt them to receive Christ and thus be justified by grace alone through faith alone. But now, before Paul makes a shift in chapter 12, where the focus will turn to the ethical implications of this theology that he's been working out In his letter to the church in Rome, Paul realizes the need to address the Gentile believers. These Gentile believers were flooding into the church in Rome and outnumbering the Jews, the ones who had claimed God's revelation and promises for so long. So Paul, by the wisdom and foresight given to him by the Holy Spirit, recognizes here the temptation among the Gentiles to conclude that they had become superior to the Jews. And thus is concerned that these Gentile believers were prone to the same danger that had infected the nation of Israel. Pride. We see this issue rising up again and again throughout the history of God's people. It's so clearly seen throughout the Old Testament. Look at King Uzziah of whom 2 Chronicles 6.5 states, He set himself to seek God in the days of Zechariah who instructed him in the fear of God, and as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. A few verses later, verses 15 and 16 of the same chapter, however, God's word says this, and his fame spread far, for he was marvelously helped till he was strong. But when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. 
We know that it was in the year that King Uzziah died that the prophet Isaiah had a vision of the Lord who instructed him to go and to preach a message of judgment to God's people for their rebellion against God. Remember here that it is the very same prophet Isaiah that Paul has just quoted a few verses earlier in chapter 11 as a reference to Israel's hardening. Uzziah, if you recall, died a leper separated from God and his people. Paul sets out here in Romans 11 to preemptively deflate the Gentiles' pride. For as biblical scholar Thomas Schreiner states, temptation to pride is not uniquely Jewish, but fundamentally human. So starting in verse 16, Paul reminds them that Just as God had set apart the patriarchs for himself and consecrated them for his salvific purposes, so he had Israel. He states here, if the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. He wants the Gentiles to understand that Israel has played a significant role in God's redemptive plan and continues to do so. And this statement in verse 16 really serves to set up verses 17 through 24 where Paul offers this illustration of an olive tree, emphasizing that the Gentiles have no reason to boast. While the illustration of the olive tree is probably clear enough for most of us to catch the main emphasis of it, most of us aren't horticulturalist or arboriculturalist culturist, rather, nor do we know about the ancient practice of grafting branches onto olive trees. So allow me to explain it a little further. So Paul lays out here how the Gentiles came to be part of the family of God, emphasizing that it was not their own doing, but by the sovereign grace of God. This, if you recall, this is not, if you recall, the first time Paul has made this point. In fact, just back in chapter 10 and verse 6, Paul quotes Deuteronomy 9, which warns Israel not to say in your heart that you have found favor in the eyes of the Lord and received his blessings by your own righteousness. So here in chapter 11, he paints this picture of a cultivated olive tree from from which some of the branches have been removed. And these branches that have been removed are those among Israel who have been cut off due to um, their unbelief. But meanwhile, the branches from a wild olive tree have been grafted onto this cultivated tree, and these branches are the Gentiles who have been engrafted into God's family. Paul will stress in just a few verses that it was by God's kindness that the Gentiles have been added to his family of faith. But not only this, these branches share in the nourishing root. As John As scholar John Murray articulates so well that the provisions of God's redemptive grace for Jew and Gentile have their base in the covenant of the fathers of Israel. To use Paul's figure here, the patriarchal patriarchal root is never uprooted to give place to another planning. And thus it continues to impart its virtue to and impress its character upon the whole organism of redemptive history. Thus, the Gentiles benefit from those who have gone before them in the faith and have become, by faith in Jesus Christ, part of this very same family. 
As Paul has said before, the children of Abraham are not determined by blood or those who follow the law, but by those who also walk in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had. It's worth noting here that many commentators have pointed out that the grafting of wild branches onto a cultivated olive tree is not the typical process of grafting branches. But this is Paul's point, right? That the Gentiles are, in a sense, unnatural to the tree. Seems to be one way in which Paul seeks to encourage humility among the Gentiles. However, there was an ancient practice of grafting wild branches to a cultivated tree as a way of revitalizing a tree that had stopped bearing fruit. In light of this, our minds might be drawn to Jesus' cursing of the fig tree, which represented an Israel which had failed to produce any spiritual fruit. It might very well be that even as Paul discourages pride among the Gentiles. He's also stressing to them the importance of their role in evangelizing the Jewish people to draw the elect among them back into the family of God. We know from this entire section of Romans that Paul has a sincere affection for his people and a desire to see them come to Christ, even from this passage where he states that he seeks to save some through his ministry to the Gentiles. Regardless, the main burden of this section is to warn believing Gentiles about the danger of boasting and pride. Pride would have certainly been a threat to evangelism. Imagine the harm that would come from an anti-Semitic sentiment creeping into the church. It would certainly choke out the church's witness to the Jews. It would have also been a tremendous threat to the people of God in Rome and all places The new Israel of God, as Paul calls it in Galatians 6, which by God's design would be comprised of both the circumcised and uncircumcised, both the Jew and the Gentile. Any sort of Gentile pride would have been very divisive in the life of the church. But Paul's warning is not simply corporate. It's also leveled at individuals. In just eight verses, Paul gives three warnings against pride. First, in verse 18, do not be arrogant toward the branches. Second, verse 20, so do not become proud but fear. The Gentiles who had come to find themselves engrafted into the people of God by God's sovereign and gracious choice could also just as easily find themselves removed as those from Israel who had remained in unbelief. Now allow me to offer us a warning. Do not read this as a possible negation of what Paul has said about being assured of our salvation through justification by faith. Paul is not contradicting himself here. Again, as biblical scholar John Murray does a great job articulating concisely and precisely what Paul is getting at. Murray states, the conditional clause in this verse, if thou continue in his goodness is a reminder that there is no security in the bond of the gospel apart from perseverance. Now, you might be wondering what that means. So he says next, There is no such thing as a continuance in the favor of God in spite of apostasy. God's saving embrace and endurance are correlative. 
In other words, those who have truly been given faith will persevere by God's grace. Or said inversely, those who fail to persevere reveal that they were not among the elect. Nevertheless, these warnings are grammatically hypothetical, as Thomas Schreiner puts it. The necessity for believers to continue to exercise faith is very serious. The issue here is one of presuming on the grace of God. And again, this is not a new warning from Paul. He's been warning us of the dangers of presumption since chapter 2 of Romans. We should, however, grasp with Paul the threat of pride. So we get to the third threat here in verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own sight. Having shared with the Gentiles this element of God's salvific plan concerning the Jews and the Gentiles, now unveiled through the unfolding gospel of Jesus Christ, Paul wants the Gentiles to recognize that it is that this mystery has been disclosed in order that they do not fall prey to pride. Here's the short of it. The gospel, the message of the gospel, should humble us. The message of the gospel should humble us. It exalts the wisdom of God, not us. If we become arrogant because of God's gracious, sovereign choice, then we have undermined the very message of the gospel, which itself preaches a humble Savior who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. There is very simply no place for pride in the lives of believers. There is no place for pride in the community of God's people. Now, we can get hung up in chapter 11 trying to figure out exactly what happens to ethnic Israel. I think to do so would miss Paul's main point. Paul's already told us what happens to Israel. True Israel, those among the nation of Israel who are the elect of God, even those who are currently rejecting the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ, as Paul wrote this letter, would come to faith in Christ and join with the Gentiles and other Jews to make up the one people of God. Again, God doesn't lose any of his people. As Paul says in verse 26, all Israel, meaning all of God's people, Jew and Gentile, will be saved. So let's not let our curiosity get the better of us here and miss Paul's main thrust in these verses. This is going to be something that Paul reminds us of often through the rest of this letter to the church in Rome. Paul begins chapter 12, do not Think of yourself more highly than you ought. That's verse 3. Rather, love one another, outdo one another in showing honor. Verse 10. He continues through this chapter and then all the way to chapter 15, which begins, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Again and again and again, Paul is going to come back to this idea of the importance of humility as he works out the very practical implications in the believer's life from this theology from the first 11 chapters. Dearly beloved, things have not changed. We need to be reminded often of the threat of pride. There's a very... Good reason why John Stott said that pride is your greatest enemy. 
Humility is your greatest friend. From Augustine to Calvin to C.S. Lewis, theologians through the ages have realized that pride is the greatest, meaning the gravest of all sins. Because, as Augustine put it, pride is the beginning of all sin. In the city of God, Augustine writes, And what is pride but the craving for undue exaltation? And this is undue exaltation. When the soul abandons him to whom it ought to cleave as its end and becomes a kind of end to itself. This is a profound statement. Pride is the desiring of exaltation and setting oneself up as a god. In mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis states, the essential vice, the utmost evil is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is a complete anti-God state of mind. And then Lewis would go on to say this, The Christians are right. It is pride, which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. Other vices may sometimes bring people together. You may find good fellowship and jokes and friendliness among drunken people or unchaste people, but pride always means enmity. It is enmity. And not only enmity between man and man, but enmity to God. In the wake of this latest mass shooting this past Sunday, I've been grieving over the state of our country. The Lord forbid that we ever become numb to the wickedness around us. We should be asking how we got here and how we as a body of Christ can make positive change in this culture around us. We as a nation are a mess. And it isn't just mass shootings, it's an opioid epidemic, it's a mental health crisis, it's a culture of divisiveness, it's daily revelations of political scandals, and people have used their positions of power and influence to sexually abuse others. I don't feel that I, as a 35-year-old, should be saying, back in the good old days when I was a little boy. So what is it? It's pride. It's pride that's been exacerbated by a postmodern philosophical mindset that encourages relativism. Popular culture has encouraged people to throw away common values and do what is right in their own eyes to be their own gods. And we wonder why we have a problem with violence, with guns, with mental health, with sexual deviancy. Look within to find meaning, the world around us has told us, and we have only to find nothing. Even as we are the most blessed people ever to have lived, living in an age filled with all the comforts and amenities of modern science and technologies, we find ourselves, as one author puts it, replete with goods, smothered in plenty, but totally alone in the cosmos. Isolated, alienated, enclosed within itself and bewildered. Life here has become devoid of meaning because meaning doesn't come from within. We have, as Augustine said, abandoned him to whom our souls ought to cleave as their end and become an end to ourselves. But at least we have domesticated our emptiness 
by creating shows like Seinfeld, right? A show which is admittedly about what? Nothing. We've learned to mock the meaninglessness and laugh at it. Proverbs 11, 2 states, when pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with the humble, there is wisdom. My point here is not to cause despair. Despair is the other side of pride, right? My point is that we want to be wise even as we live in this world filled with an encouraging pride and despair at every turn. And it's not just them, it's us. As Tim Keller says in one of his sermons, only Christianity destroys both pride and despair. Christianity first shows you a law that has been totally fulfilled, destroying your pride. Then Christianity shows you a Savior who has totally fulfilled it, getting rid of your despair. Paul's already addressed this issue of despair in the previous section of Romans where he hammered home the assurance of our salvation on the basis of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So now we need to ensure That having been assured of our salvation, we haven't fallen into the ditch on the other side of the road. Believing that we can take credit for our blessed state. We as the church want to live in a way that is in accordance with what we proclaim. We should, should want to live in accordance with what we proclaim, not in opposition to it. Therefore, we need to examine ourselves to see if there be any pride in us. This is a spiritual exercise that for the sake of our relationship with God and each other, for the sake of our witness before the world, we must attend to regularly. Humility, after all, is one of the hallmarks of the Christian faith. In John Calvin's Institutes of Christian Religion, he says this, A saying of Christosom's has always, that's John Christosom, the golden mouth, the church father. A saying of Christosom's has always pleased me very much. That the foundation of our philosophy is humility. But that of Augustine pleases me even more. When a certain rhetorician was asked what was the chief rule in eloquence, he replied, delivery. What was the second rule? Delivery. What was the third rule? Delivery. So if you ask me concerning the precepts of Christian religion, first, second, and third, and always, I would answer humility. As a good means for self-examination, I want to commend to you this morning Jonathan Edwards' short essay on undetected pride, which he calls the most secret of all sins. The essay begins like this. The first and worst cause of error that prevails in our day is spiritual pride. This is the main door by which the devil comes into the hearts of those who are zealous for the advancement of Christ. It is the chief inlet of smoke from the bottomless pit to darken the mind and mislead the judgment. And the main handle by which Satan takes hold of Christians to hinder a work of God. Until this disease is cured, medicines are applied in vain to heal all other diseases. I want to encourage you to read the short essay by Edwards, which you can readily find available online. But I want to give you a brief outline of some of the fruits of pride, albeit rotten, poisonous fruits, according to Edwards. I found them to be very convicting. The first is fault-finding. 
pride causes us to easily see faults in others, even as we filter out God's goodness in them and the evil in ourselves. Fault finding. The second is a harsh spirit. Pride in the heart causes us not to be loving and gentle with one another, but to speak to and of one another in an irritable, frustrated, and judgmental way. The third is superficiality. Pride causes us to be more concerned with how we appear outwardly to others than the inward condition of our heart. We might even be addressing sin in our lives, but it's only the sin that makes us look bad to others. Pride is dangerously subtle in this way. The fourth is defensiveness. Pride reacts to opposition with bitterness and contempt. The fifth is presumption before God. Pride causes us to approach God with an irreverent boldness, as though we deserve his blessings. Or, although Edwards doesn't explicitly say this, But we have to be careful here because pride also might take the form of having no confidence at all before God, revealing that we believe our sin is greater than God's grace. The sixth is a hunger for attention. Pride is always looking for attention and respect and worship. And finally, the seventh is neglecting others. Pride causes us to think highly of ourselves and to look to honor those in the world that the world says are honorable because we want them to also honor us, even as it causes us to overlook those who have nothing to offer our ego, like the weak, the poor, the inconvenient. The point of all of these is to encourage a self-forgetfulness that counters the self-fixation of pride. Humility, as C.S. Lewis said, is not thinking less of ourselves, but thinking of ourselves less. Get that? It's not thinking less of ourselves, but thinking of ourselves less. It might just be that we as individuals and as a body of Christ have some work to do in regard to pride. We should take heed of Paul's warning, which is the warning of Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Before I close this morning, I want to draw your attention to how Paul concludes this chapter. Look at what he says. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgment. How inscrutable are his ways. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Paul does not miss the opportunity here. Through his doxology, recognizing the sovereignty of God, the mystery of God, he doesn't want us to miss that we are entirely dependent upon God to teach us and to save us. The initiative in both Revelation and Redemption John Stott points out, lies in God's grace. The attempt to reverse roles would be to dethrone God and to deify ourselves. I hope, it's my prayer, that daily we are praising God with an understanding of 
this God that we are entirely dependent on. I hope that we are left with a humbling look at God and ourselves. To God be all the glory. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would reveal in us any pride that might exist. That it would be rooted out in our lives in order that we might have right relationship with you and one another and that we might live as your ambassadors before the world. Showing that there is meaning in life, but it doesn't come from within. It comes from without. It comes from you. Lord, help us put this gravest of all sins to death in our lives by the power of your Holy Spirit. For we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Having heard the gospel proclaimed, let us now stand and affirm what we believe.